So I think it goes without saying that many of you know that Michigan State is part of our culture here, and uh, we as a church experience a lot of people that come in the door and after a few years go out the door. Uh, sometimes people come here, uh, attend uh, MSU, and return. Uh, did you know that one of our elders, Abe Edwards, Abe and Megan were here when they, when they were both doing graduate work, and then they had the audacity to leave us, uh, and the Lord said, no, go back, you know, Jonah. So they, they came back, and uh, we're grateful for that. It turned out someone else was here for graduate work. Uh, uh, Doug Walker and Doug and Elizabeth are back. There they are right there. So, uh, so just know we are the church that you can never leave. <laughs> Let me tell you another story. So a young man from Wyoming, Michigan, steps onto uh, the MSU campus. Uh, he's just another lost freshman trying to find his way around. At the same time, a girl from the state of Wyoming also steps on campus as a lost freshman just trying to find their way around. But they weren't just lost in terms of orienting themselves to the campus. They were really lost. They didn't know Jesus Christ as their savior at all. But Jesus Christ was determined to capture them at MSU. And so he used an organization that he's been using for decades, an organization he used to capture me on a college campus, uh, the Ministry of Crew, represented by Brian Robin right here. And so the Lord captured both Mac and Kira. They surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. Not long after that, they began attending a church, this church, Red Cedar. Uh, and not long after that, they began dating. Fast forward 11 years, Kira today is a, a PA, Mac is a pastor at one of the premier pastoral training churches in the country, uh, Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. And I thought it would be a good idea to bring him back to remind you that sometimes those small things we do that just last for a short time wind up producing quite a bit of glory in the vineyard of God. So Mac, welcome. That is far higher praise than I deserve. So I would ask if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, and I hope you take and open it, that you would open with me to the book of Deuteronomy into its sixth chapter. Deuteronomy is toward the front of your Bible. I will read for us the first nine verses of Deuteronomy 6, although our study will focus on just verses 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, and beginning in verse 1, we read these words of Moses. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we thank you that week by week you gather us to worship as your people. We thank you for the clarity and the sufficiency of your word. We pray and ask now that you would do what only you can do, that by your spirit you would take the truths of your word and you would plant them deep in our hearts that we might grow in our knowledge and love of you. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you are anything like me, which I recognize is a big if, and you are at least my age or older, you might have the experience of remembering going to school as a kid and at least on occasion reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. I can remember it quite well as a a little person standing next to my desk and uh, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, having no idea what I was saying, but wholeheartedly following along. You recognize as well as I do that when we are speaking of the Pledge of Allegiance, it's this sort of statement of where loyalty lies. It's this declaration as a country of uh, where we are desiring to go and where our affections are. It's what is responsible for us as citizens to pledge allegiance to this flag. You see, as we consider these verses I've just read, They functioned in a similar way to how the Pledge of Allegiance might function in our lives as a nation. These verses, commonly known as the Shema, they were a statement of where ultimate loyalty lies. It was straightforwardly Israel's creed. Unlike America, this isn't a statement of saying that we belong to some geopolitical power and this is where we will give our affection and loyalty. It is a statement of belonging to the one and only God, the true and living God. He is our God. Now, the original recipients of the book of Deuteronomy, they are on the cusp of the promised land. They're about to experience God's fulfillment of his great promise to bring them into this land. In the first three chapters of the book, there this historic flashback. Moses is looking back on past events, and among doing other things, he's highlighting two ongoing themes. On the one hand, this remarkable statement of God's covenant faithfulness. He has done everything he promised he would. And on the exact other hand, this remarkable story of Israel's unfaithfulness. They have done almost nothing that God has called them to. The second generation recognizes that they're on the cusp of the promised land, knowing that the first generation will never get to go in. If we're familiar with the storyline of the Bible, we know that they perished in the wilderness because of unbelief. Chapters 4 through 11 then, where chapter 6 finds itself, is a point in Deuteronomy where Moses is seeking to motivate Israel, motivate them to keep, to obey the covenant, and he does so in a number of ways. He seeks to motivate them by reminding them of the beauty of God. He seeks to motivate them by 
setting before them a full and rich life in the land if they will keep God's covenant, his law. He sets before them the somber warning of the previous generation, the mothers and fathers of those standing on the cusp of the promised land saying, you know what disobedience leads to. In chapter 5, then, we see this great story that God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, Moses recounts, saved Israel out of Egypt. He plucked them up, and they were a people his very own. He conquered the military superpowers of the day, leading them out triumphantly. In the rest of chapter 5, the Ten Commandments are reiterated and expounded. And then we read of the events of Mount Sinai, that Israel rightly trembled as God spoke from the mountain. And that brings us to chapter 6. One of the high points of the entirety of this book, certainly the loftiest command that you or I could imagine, a comprehensive pledge of allegiance, a call to love the Lord, to love Yahweh with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. Moses intended for his original readers and for you and I today to be very clear about one thing. The unique character of God, it compels us to love God supremely and to teach others to do the same. The unique character of God compels us to love God supremely and to teach everyone we encounter to do the same. That's our big idea. If you're a note-taking sort of person, that's where we're going to come back to. That's the one thing I want us to walk away with. And we're going to look at this text under three headings. We'll see this unique God requires a unique love, which issues itself in unique responsibilities. But firstly, verse 4, again, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In verses 1 through 9 of Deuteronomy 6, every one of them begins with one of two common Hebrew conjunctions. Something that means and, or thus, or so, that is except verse 4. Grammatically, it's being highlighted for us. It's like Moses has taken out a pen and he circled it, and it begins with a command. Hear, or listen up, O Israel. Now, the imagery this should evoke in our minds is less of the airline stewardess trying to get our attention for the safety video that you and I know none of us are watching. The imagery is more of a courtroom awaiting a verdict, hushed anticipation. Every eye, every ear is locked in on what Moses will say. And he declares, Yahweh, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. This is a personal claim for Israel. He is our God. We have benefited from his saving power. We are the people of his pasture. And as you recognize, it's also a theological claim. In the ancient Near East, in the time in which this was unfolding, every major worldview was characterized by polytheism. Multiple gods vying and warring for the affection of those that they would have bowed down to them. And Moses, from the get-go, makes it abundantly clear, it is not so with this God. One commentator I read put it this way, that when the Lord spoke, there was no other to contradict. When he promised, there was no one to revoke that promise. And when he warned, there was no other to provide refuge from that warning. 
Moses is making clear the Lord is not one among many or even first among rivals. He is transcendent, altogether other, incomparable in every way, the only true, the only living God. So we see then verse 4, it's the claim that sits behind the first of the Ten Commandments, if you know them, the most important of the Ten Commandments. The declaration, you shall have no other gods before me, is the logical consequence of Moses saying, there is only one God. He is our God. We belong to him. In many ways throughout the pages of scripture, the covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel is likened to a marriage. An unwavering pledge of commitment and fidelity and loyalty. When I took my marriage vows to Kira, it was a declaration that she and she alone would enjoy the privileges and the blessings and the hardships of being my, of being my wife. It didn't mean that there are no other women that exist in the world. It meant that only she would relate to me in this way. But we see that the marriage picture ultimately then falls a little bit short for how Israel relates to Yahweh. There's certainly a volitional and affectional commitment that they must make. He's our God. We will only worship him. But it's not because they've walked down the supermarket of all the gods they could have and They've surveyed the aisles and they've said, this is the best one. It's because he's the only one. It's because there is no one like him. Anything else than that would vie or claim for divinity or God-like allegiance in our hearts. We recognize that's a fake. It's a non-God. It's phony. It's worthless. So this unique identity of who God is, it was at the core of Israel's self-understanding. When they had their heads on straight, they said, we want to know this God more. We exist to love him. The natural question that emerges from that then is, could we say the same? Is the truth of who God is, is that at the center of how we understand our identity, of how we make sense of ourselves in this world? Or do you know the same reality that I do, that it's far too easy to go hours and days without being reminded of who God is and what he's like and why we need him. On the other side of the cross, we have the privilege to know that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. We behold the glory of this God in the face of Jesus, our resurrected King and Savior. And for the Christian, if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, your most central identity is that you belong to him. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You have been loved with an everlasting love. That is the most important thing about us if we gather here in that assurance this morning. Not what has happened, not what we've done, not where we've come from. I belong to him. That is my God, my king my Savior. In prospect of being back in Lansing this weekend, it was hard not to think of old memories of being here. And one, as I studied, that came to mind was a Bible and breakfast event that was held right here at Red Cedar. It was for ladies, so I wasn't there, but Kira was, and we were dating, so she always gave me the scoop at the end. (laughs) And you see, she walked away with this resounding takeaway 
a takeaway that would mark her life and my life forever. And it's pretty simple. It's this idea that the Bible is first and foremost a book about God. It's about him. It's his self-revelation, his condescension in speaking to us. And so, friends, I ask you, every time we open up the scriptures, do we realize what's happening? God is graciously stooping low. He's saying, this is who I am, and this is what I'm like. This is what I've done. Every page of scripture declares his glory, reminds us of his unchanging character. Every page of the Bible invites us to come and behold this God, pledge allegiance afresh to him, not in some sort of rote way, going through the motions in fresh and lively ways where we recognize this is the true and living God. All of my life is bound up in him. The beauty of Jesus Christ. We've seen then that God has unique character. There is no one, there is nothing like him. And as we turn our attention to verse 5, we recognize that this unique God requires unique love from us. Who he is merits any and everything that we could offer him. We had read for us so helpfully this morning from Matthew 12 when Jesus is asked in the gospel, what is the greatest commandment, teacher? And I hope you noted that he quotes these words, Deuteronomy 6.5. He quotes and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So as we consider these words then, we recognize that whether we existed in an ancient Near Eastern place on the cusp of the promised land or in Okemos in 2023, that the central call of your life, if you are a human being, is that you exist to love and know this God. That is the, the primary grandest aim that we could ever aspire to. And as we see this love is to be in repetition with all our hearts and all our strength and all our might. Certainly, I, you know as well as I do, there are nuances as we consider these words that the heart and soul and might are not all the same thing. But if we pause and we look at those for too long, I think we miss the idea of what Moses is doing. We skip the forest for the trees. Because what Moses is making abundantly clear and what you and I must know is that every fiber of our being exists to love this God. Everything we are and everything we have is to love and worship God. Every thought we have rationally, every love we long for affectionately, every ounce of our will volitionally is to love God. And I imagine if you're, again, anything like me, then you recognize that our modern notions of love fall quite short of what Moses is intending for us here. You see, loving our God, it is concerned with our affections, but not in the way our culture might like to make sense of it or the way in which even you and I probably conceive of it most naturally. To love Yahweh with all of our heart and all of our soul, it goes beyond mere blind sentimentalism. It's not just a feeling. The biblical conception of the heart, it's the center of who we are. So it's where we feel, but it's also where we reason and make decisions and where we plan our steps. 
So that means then that loving this God, it is not primarily bound up in subjective experience. It's an objective reality. To love him is to obey him. It is to follow him all our days. Imagine with me, it's a silly thing to imagine, but Moses has put all this hard work in. He has faithfully spoken on behalf of God as a good prophet. He's headed to wherever he goes next, and he finds a group of Israelites. And just after he said what he said, that they are making graven images, and they're bowed before them, and he's exasperated. What are you doing? I just told you, you exist for the glory of God. You exist to love him. Why would you do this? And they say to him, oh, Moses, I think you're confused. We think you're confused. You see, we do love this God. We love him very much. We've had the most wonderful, worshipful experience here with these graven images. I know in my heart that I love this God very much, Moses. Brothers and sisters, you know as well as I do that for lack of any better language, that's nonsense. There is no love of God that is not matched and paired with our obedience to him. We exist to know him and to love him, and we therefore cannot go along habitually setting aside his commandments and saying, I love this God. Jesus says in his earthly ministry in John 13, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we love our God as we obey our God, as we joyfully and willingly subject ourselves to him, living under his rule and reign. Someone I read recently put the question this way, and it's rattled around in my head since I've read it. If the voice in your head says yes, but the voice of God in the scriptures says no, who will you listen to? Now that's kind of ethereal, it's out there. What if we bring it home to real life? If the voice in your head says, it's been a long day, you deserve to relax, I'm sure your spouse or your roommate will take care of the mess that you've made. But the voice of scripture tells us that to follow Jesus is to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Which voice will you listen to? If the voice of our culture or of your workplace says that when a coworker who is difficult leaves the room, that the voice in your head says, I'll, I'll just complain about them a little. I'll just jump on board with a little of what they're doing. But the voice of God condemns gossip. To who will we listen? To who will we pledge allegiance? I don't want anyone to misunderstand me in what I'm saying. I am not talking about perfection. We are gathered here this morning as a celebration of the reality that only the Lord Jesus Christ has ever perfectly kept this commandment. Our whole life is bound up in that he has been righteous where we have not. He has lived the perfect life. He has died sacrificially. He has been raised from the grave and has ascended at the right hand of the Father. But this Jesus, who has drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf, he has also freed us from the power of sin. That means, brothers and sisters, if we're in Christ, it is not only possible, it is necessary that we grow in our obedience. That our love of God is growing and evolving as we know more of him. 
if you're tracking with me to this point, a natural sort of question emerges. What is it then that prohibits me or prevents me from loving this God? Or on the flip side, how can I grow in my love for God? And I want to suggest to you that from the biblical account, there is a principle that the Bible would answer that is at the heart of this idea. And it's this. We do not love God as we ought because we do not know God as we should. We do not love God as we ought because we do not know God as we should. Right? Moses has intentionally grounded verse 5 on the heels of verse 4. It is as if there is a very quiet whisper of therefore that proceeds, you shall love the Lord your God. Because of who God is, therefore you shall love him supremely. Because of who God is to see him, to know him rightly, it is to want him. We all have people in our lives, this is a sad reality, but the more you know of them, the less inclined you are to them. My friends, that will never be true of this God. The more we know, the more we want, the greater we bow the knee before him, the more we're led to love him and delight in him. To the extent that we're thinking and believing rightly about this God, our love for him will grow. It's the natural effect of who he is. The slave trader turned pastor and hymn writer, John Newton, wrote a hymn that captures this idea. One of the stanzas goes like this. He says, how weak the efforts of my heart how cold my warmest thoughts. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Now I understand Newton seems to be writing and reflecting on that great day where we see Jesus face to face perfectly. But the principle holds true even though our experience of it is not yet fully realized. As we see God increasingly for who he tells us he is in the scriptures, then our love for him will grow. So as good, attentive people, you find yourselves asking, well then, Mac, what's the to-do point? Is this where you want me to try harder? I pull myself up by my, my bootstraps. I seek to will some kind of love from inside of me and make sure that it belongs to my God. No, please don't misunderstand me. The application is to know and delight in this God, to savor him on every page of scripture, to recognize the beauty of who he is ever increasingly for all of our days. The application, though, is not just individual, although it must begin there. It's corporate. It's a call for us to be the sort of place where we are reminding one another this is what we exist for, to love this God where our casual conversations are marked by, remember how holy he is. Remember his grace, his unerring goodness. It has individual components, corporate components, and as we transition to our final heading, we will see that it has generational components. As we look at verses 6 through 9, our last point, we recognize that Moses is describing unique responsibilities in light of the unique character of God and the unique call to love him supremely. 
he writes, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The law of God summed up in the greatest commandment to love God supremely. It is to be on the hearts of all God's people. That is, it is to be deeply internalized, something that we are ever familiar with. We get a picture of what this looks like as we think about a common phrase that I imagine you've used within the last month. A phrase that goes like, oh, I know that by heart. It's a description of something we're so familiar with, something that has occupied so much of our attention that at the drop of a hat, anywhere you go, you could recite it or share it with someone. There's a plethora of song lyrics, statistics, phone numbers, quotes from our favorite TV shows and movies, and we can rattle them off effortlessly if we're honest. They naturally flow from our lips. Ought this not to be true of the very word of God? If he should speak, we must listen, and we must listen attentively. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is going to give instruction to the future kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17. And He will say to them, along with some ethical requirements of forsaking multiple wives and not having lavish wealth, that they are to do this. Each king should write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Every king was his duty to sit down to handwrite a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. And then to have it fact-checked by the priest to make sure that he did it correctly, that he knew what it said. They were to soak in God's revealed will. They needed to know it. It was a central requirement of their leadership. Several hundreds of years later, Charles Spurgeon would say something similar as he spoke of um, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with that. Spurgeon said of him, I think if you were to cut John Bunyan, that he would bleed the Bible. He was steeped in it. It would ooze out of him if you let it. Now, if I'm not careful, and I'm seeking to be careful, it would be easy for anyone to think that this is the sort of uh, Bible browbeating legalism that so many of us have been harmed by in our lives. But I am trying to say anything but that. I'm talking about an invitation to know and love God, the glorious, sovereign creator who has stooped down in Christ to seek and to save the lost. He is speaking to us in his word. Why would we not want to know and delight in absolutely everything that he says? So God's word is to be deeply internalized. We are to know it, be committed to it in memory. And we see in verse 7 that this was for far more than personal edification. It was outwardly focused. Verse 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. God's covenant people bear the responsibility to entrust the truths of this good news to future generations. We recognize then that the task of internalizing God's word is far more pressing or important than we might have even realized. We cannot pass on to a future generation what we have not lived for and experienced ourselves. 
And I want to be clear, this straightforwardly, you all are reasonable people, has direct implications for Christian families, for all the little ones that I can see and uh, all the little ones represented downstairs. But it has implications that we might not realize for God's larger family, for the church and the local expression of the church here at Red Cedar. Because some of you are past the age of having kids and now have grandkids, or some of you may never have children. But the truth of the matter is, each and every one of us is being invited to instruct the next generation, to teach them either one of two things, and there's really nothing that exists in between to teach them by our lives and our lips that they exist for the glory of God, to know and to love him, or to teach them by our lives and our lips that they exist for the glory of themselves and for others to love them. Just as we saw this call to love God was to be a whole person, all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might, we see that children are to be taught anywhere and everywhere. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, when you drive to school, when you find yourself going for groceries, when you find yourself on a walk down the road. Anywhere and everywhere we are to be reciting and teaching and clarifying. Every parent in this room knows that there is so much that you long for for your kids. So many good things in their younger years, you want them to learn and grow and excel, and that never really goes away. We all want our kids to be successful and to be secure and all of these things to take place, but my wife and I had our first daughter 11 months ago, and as I've thought about this text, it has left me with an uneasy question that I have to answer. And it goes like this, her name is Eleanor. And so the question is Mac. If Eleanor is of average intelligence, if Eleanor never accomplishes anything very remarkable in this life, if Eleanor and her potential future husband actually struggle to make ends meet, but if she sincerely and joyfully loves and serves this God for all of her days, is that enough for you? Brothers and sisters, it must be. It's the only reason God would be so good and gracious to give me a daughter. We can hope to influence and to impart many things to the coming generations. But nothing will matter more than teaching them the sufficiency, the beauty of this God and all that he's done in Christ. But I want you to hear this is both a a call, it's an exhortation, but it's also a celebration. The fact that my wife and I are here this morning is evidence that this is the sort of place that is doing this. I still am in some ways as younger than many of you, but was more seven years ago a part of this future generation being summoned to love and obey this God, seeing modeled Sunday by Sunday by all of you what it looks like to live for him and to delight in him. So as we must grow in this, we also thank God this is happening right here. I wouldn't be standing here preaching if it weren't the case. Moses is painting a picture of a way of life in which every Israelite, no matter 
where they were or where they were going, that belonging to the covenant community meant that their life was curated, that everywhere they went, they would see reminders of who God is, that they exist to love him, that loving and loyal obedience was incumbent on them as who they are. No greater aim was envisioned than corporate people, Israel, loving their God together. And no greater aim should be envisioned in each of our lives. There's no higher calling. There's nothing better than that that we're waiting for. Verses 8 and 9 continue in these instructions. These words that Moses has been speaking of, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. These words were to be taken and placed and written everywhere, observable by all, reminders, cues of Israel's primary call and responsibility. It's interesting, historical archaeological findings have found that Israel took this very literally. There's small little parchments of paper with the first Hebrew letter in the Shema that have been found where Israel was. And that's a beautiful and a worthwhile thing, but we have to recognize it's also dangerous. It's dangerous because we can go through and do all of the external things that we're summoned to in Deuteronomy 6 and still miss the point. I'm capable of slapping a Bible verse on every coffee cup or on the sticker on the back of my iPad and still forgetting who this God is, that I exist for him, that I must know him. Of forgetting that I exist to teach others to do the same. That my call to love him is to issue itself in teaching others to obey and live for him all of their days. The heart of Moses' instruction is that anywhere and everywhere an Israelite turned, they would be reminded of this. Not just from these little parchments of paper, but from one another. From brothers and sisters who would say to them, you exist for the glory of God. You are to love him. He is to be everything to you. So practically, let's get out the three by five cards and write Bible verses on them again. Let's stuff them in our pockets and carry them with us everywhere we go so that when we have a free moment, we can recite it and realize that we're still getting it wrong. It means of us that we should send a text to that brother or sister who you haven't seen around here in a little bit who routinely or regularly gathered with us and has been gone for a time because maybe they've lost sight of this. It means above all that we must watch our own life and our own doctrine very closely in recognizing that this supreme call to love the Lord our God is nothing easy to do. Only possible because Jesus Christ has bought it on our behalf. We have to guard ourselves against going through the motions. Some people have called it playing church. This God, the one of whom we speak, the one who is revealed on every page of scripture, he is far too glorious to be someone that we have a cavalier or tangential affection towards. Far too glorious to be someone who we could say, ah, take it or leave it. He's a part of my life, but he's not everything. The Bible does not leave us with that category, nor should we want it because of how beautiful and wonderful he is. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and it is, there's only one fitting response. 
Trust in the Lord Jesus. Have your sins forgiven. Delight in who he is and what he's done and love this God for all of your days. And I say that to myself before I would dare say it to any of you. Brothers and sisters, we recognize and know that what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ means we have a new master. If we pledge allegiance to this country as citizens of it, then far more we pledge allegiance to King Jesus. We say, my ultimate loyalty is to you, to nothing and to no one else. I exist to love you, to serve you, to worship you for all of my days. If we've been rescued from sin and slavery, from darkness, then we've been brought into light to know and to love and to enjoy our God. And I have the unique privilege this morning of getting to open God's word and say this to you because you have done this in my life. So thank you. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we are stunned and astonished by your grace that any of us would be here that you would not deal with us as our sins deserve in Christ that you the perfect holy one would have anything to do with us it's, it's truly staggering and we thank you for all that you've done we thank you for who you are that you are worthy of all our worship and all our affection and we pray and ask that you will help us to know you more in order that we might love you better that every time we open up the scriptures that we might be reminded that you are the true and living God. 